Hey there folks, Alex Lokes here, classic camera revival. And today we are talking about cameras that are good. They might not be great, but you need see the problem is, is that in the wider market, they don't get enough love. We are talking about those lovely hidden gems we have in our kits that we bring out when we, you know, just want to get get good images but don't want to draw too much attention to ourselves. Welcome to the Classic Camera Revival, coming to you from the Greater Toronto Hamilton region of Ontario, Canada. If you don't have gear acquisition syndrome now, you most likely will by the end of the episode. So first on the list is one that I found very interesting that it made it on the list, considering that there is a huge craze about these cameras currently going on. Thank you, celebrities. I'm, of course, talking about the Yashica T4. Take it away, Trevor. Why do you have this expensive chunk of plastic on the list? Well, because I bought it as a point-and-shoot, a pro-like point-and-shoot. No, but when it was brand new back in 96, 97, when it first came out. Oh, um, so now you're saying you got it before it was cool? Yes. <laughs> before, Absolutely. Before OJ didn't do it? Yeah. Uh, no, OJ had done it by that time. He did it in 94. But anyway. Um, no, I bought this, oddly enough, because I needed a reliable uh, point and shoot uh, when I was doing uh, glider flying. And I had to photograph uh, my location spots when I was doing uh, distant triangles. Um, and uh, you had to document that you'd actually cross this point, that point, that point. And I needed a small, reliable, um, you know, point and shoot. And instead of just getting some, you know, cheapy, 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 cheapy one, I found this one. It had a Carl Zeiss 3.5 Tessar lens on it. It had a um, waist level viewfinder, um, and it was very easy to use. And uh, it was a really nice camera. It was what about 250 bucks back in the day, and uh, to this day I still have it. Um, I mention it because it's I've taken out traveling with me. It's weather. Uh, resistant um so it has been in a rainfall on a beach in brazil um sorry not brazil, uh belize um and kept working and to this day it still works now yes unfortunately they've become trendy you know oh my gosh i have to be a kardashian to have one sort of thing but to me it's a you know a very reliable um point and shoot that i've taken on many travels with me and quite happy with Nice. Well, um, sticking on the uh, topic of point-and-shoot cameras, and ones that won't cost you an arm and a leg to get, um, the camera I have here is something that you'll probably find odd that I actually own and use, and that's the uh, Pentax SPO-115M. Now, the SPO line is um, is actually a quite a long line of cameras from Pentax, and some of them do get into Kardashian territory price-wise on the used market. Um, but the 115M is not one of those cameras. It is small, it's point-and-shoot, there is zero automation on this whatsoever, <laughs> except for the zoom lens. It's not fast, there's a definite shutter lag that you can count in seconds. Um, when you uh, zoom it all the way to um, 115 millimeters, you don't have a fast lens. Um, and it's not sharp, but if you just leave it at f at the uh, thirty eight millimeter mark, it's 
it's a great little carry around pocket camera. Um, it even has the uh, faux panoramic format on it. If you're into that, um, it's it's no nonsense. I can. It's would be great to fill in that spot that people love love to use those overpriced plastic yashikas for these days. But you can probably buy it for five bucks at a um, at a Goodwill or a Salvation Army. Yeah. Um, What's the zoom range again? Thirty five to thirty eight to one hundred and fifteen. So that's a, that's a good travel lens. It's or weird. Cam, yeah. It's weird. Um, that in some ways is almost a camera you can toss in your briefcase if you yeah you commute from the suburbs to the city, but you don't want to lug around a full yeah. camera kit with you. A Rolly thirty five just requires too much thinking. Yeah, uh, you you don't think with this camera. No, it tie you tie, you put it in. You still got tons of room for all your other yeah. stuff, uh, and you're going to get. Very nice photos out of it because again, it's Pentax glass and yeah. you can't go wrong with Pentax glass. And another nice thing is that it does actually have composition lines in the viewfinder um, because there is a lot of uh, parallax error with it um, because of where everything is. But you know what? It's it's just really nice. I don't see myself getting rid of it anytime soon. Um, if one of my nieces or a nephew wants to shoot film, it's a camera I can give them, and if they drop it. I don't care. I, I don't care. Right. Um, yeah, no. Definitely a excellent choice if you are looking for um, a point-and-shoot but don't want to pay a premium for it. Um, all right. So we are going to jump next to John, who has not only one camera but an entire line of cameras to discuss, and that is, of course, the Voigtlander Vito series. Uh, thanks, Alex. And I was wondering, is it Vito, Vito? I think Vito was right. Um, potato, potato. Yeah, someone will correct me, I'm sure. The internet will say that I'm wrong. Um, and don't worry, I'm not going to talk about every single camera in this line. Otherwise, it would be a rather long show. But uh, I do want to talk about, uh, we'll sort of hit the high points. Um, the, there's basically two kinds of cameras in the uh in the uh, the Vito slash Vito line, there's the uh, ones that tend to have numbers like uh, the Vito one, two, three, which are little thirty five millimeter folders. They look a lot like the original um, retinas or retinas. Oh, here we go again. And these are uh, for the most part, you know, scale focus. Right? So, like the original Vito uh, is actually a pre war. Uh, it had used a 828 film and had a uh, an uncoated scope bar lens. I think this would be of interest to hardcore collectors only because if you think 127 film is expensive and hard to get your hands on, try finding 828. That is that is not common film. But uh, post war, you had the Vito 2, and again, it's the the form factor is pretty much the same. Uh, it's a folder. 35 millimeter viewfinder, so your scale focus, but it takes one. It takes the 135 millimeter. <laughs> see what I did there? The 35 millimeter film, and has a coated color scope bar lens. And the color scope bar lens is one of uh, Voigtlander's real triumphs. I think uh, they used that lens a lot. Typically, either the 50 millimeter, like the 50 millimeter 3.5 or 2.8 amazing lens because it's you know it's a tessar design beautiful color rendition with uh with slides and you, you can't go wrong 
And so there was also a, uh, a Vito 3 that uh, actually was a rangefinder model and had the Ultron lens, a 50mm F2 Ultra le- Ultron, which was a sort of their higher-end lens, you know, a few more elements, a bit better corrected, and, of course, faster. Now, we get to the uh, the Vitos with the letters, like the B and the C. Those were ones where like, the, the lens was fixed. It did not uh, fold out. But apart from that, fairly similar to... Uh, the form factor. These are small, uh, very compact cameras. Again, with the 50 millimeter uh, color scope, are either f 3.5 or uh, or 2.8. Um, the early ones had a fairly small viewfinder. The the late model Vito B is where I think they really got it right. I've I've talked about the Vito B on the show before. Scale focus, huge bright viewfinder you know with uh, you know parallax uh, bright frame lines for street shooting one and gun i think it's just amazing and it's so cute and small it is very cute and small but the thing is they're built they're they're, they're built of metal they're solid and they have a feel of a of a jewel they're literally a a human gem or a, a hidden gem human gem too and then the, there was one model the vito br which is actually a rangefinder I bought one, but it didn't work. But uh, again, if you're okay with scale focus, uh, you're fine. The last ones I'm going to mention are some of the Vitomatics. And the, the name is a bit misleading because they have meters. Up until the end, it was selenium meters. The, the very last models in the late 60s had CDS. They're selenium metal, uh, meters. They are sort of coupled in some cases, but they're not automatic. So... The thing is, typically, when you buy a camera of that vintage with a selenium meter, you can normally bank on the fact that the selenium meter will be toast. But uh, you can still use the film, you still use the camera as you would, let's say, the Vito B. So again, these are small, compact. They fit lovely in the hand, beautifully engineered. You just pick one up, and it feels like a precision mechanism. And these are still affordable. Like, I'm not going to spend two grand for a Kardashian camera where, you know, if I if I shop around and impatient, I can get, let's say, one of the nice Vitomatics for a hundred bucks yeah, with the amazing lenses. So they're worth every penny. And Voigtlander, that name has been around a long time. And I'm talking, of course, about the pre-Cosina days. Mm. These cameras deserve to be used and remembered. Absolutely. I have owned a lot of uh, some of those uh, point-and-shoot ones. Uh, I call them point-and-shoots, but they were like the rangefinder style, Uh, the automatics and the the Vito B and the the threes and stuff like that. Uh, We had some family friends from Germany, and that when they were clearing out their house, they just handed me a box full of them. Their childhood ones, their father's ones, their uncle's ones. Is your name Alex or something? (laughs) (laughs) You know, the Vito Bs, um, they um, they can be quite the cool little finds because... They don't fire unless they're loaded. Yeah, and yeah. everyone so, thinks they don't work. Thinks they don't work. So yeah. if you find one that says doesn't work and it's like ten bucks, bring Buy it. Offer them five and go. Yeah. <laughs> Pull the trigger. Yeah. You know, uh, some of a, the other put earlier a, ones though. Put a junkie kinda... roll of film in it and let her rip. 
Yeah. Absolutely. An interesting fact about some of the earlier ones, not all, but some were designed for only outdoor photography and some for only indoor photography uh, because of the coatings. The coatings had uh, were more designed for saturation for outside and uh, less saturation for inside uh, for skin tones and stuff indoors. Now, unfortunately, mm-hmm. I don't remember exactly the demarcations that would be able to yeah, tell well, one those, from the other. Those would have like either the color Skopar or the ultra. Um, Ultrons, right? Ultrons, yeah, I yeah. think so. The so. Ultron is kind of the holy grail uh, yeah. lens for for those cameras, right? Yeah. Now, one thing I did mention to stay away from when they got towards the end, Voigtlander started cheaping out, um, and they started using these uh, Lanthar lenses. Oh, interesting. Which are cheap triplets. Mm. Go for the color scope part. Yeah. Yeah. So, in, in terms of the like the decent lenses, there the. The snaps uh, Scopar is sort of the lighter version of the color. Is that correct? Right. Yeah, that's it. Well, the color Scopar, like that's what they started calling the po- the post war, uh, because it's coated. Okay. Like it's coated so to get better color right. rendition. Hence the name. And was do you know anything about the snaps Scopar? The snap. Well, there's a snapshot Scopar, which is a which is a Cosina lens. Okay. I have one of those. Oh, okay. Well, um, not all um, hidden gems are are range finders or point and shoots um some slrs don't get as much love and um bill has one a uh, canon ef not to be confused with the lens mount yes uh canon um let's go back in the time machine to 1971 canon introduced the f1 and the ftb and then all of a sudden pentax came along with the es the es2 in 1972, Nikon came out with the Nikomat EL, which is their aperture priority. So, of course, there's a bit of a race with technology for electronically controlled shuttered cameras. 1973, the Canon came out with its answer, the EF. It is a test bed of a camera. It has some technology in it that you didn't see anywhere else in the Canon lineup. It is the only Canon uh, with a vertical copal shutter. So if you want to shoot in cold weather, yeah, this is the Canon you want. Stay away from the A-Series. They will be a nice, lovely paperweight after minus 2 degrees centigrade or 34 degrees Fahrenheit or whenever you measure cold temperatures in. So um, the EF it is a bit of a test bed of a camera. It has got a hybrid copal shutter. So everything above 1 second to 1 1,000th is mechanical. But everything 1 second and slower to 30 seconds is electronically controlled. It's controlled by two 625 batteries. It's 1.3 volts. So in the studio audience, everyone's going, oh, damn, i got to figure out another work. You don't have to worry about that. There is a bridge circuit in the camera to look after the lovely battery variation. So you can use a 1.5 volts uh, batteries in this camera. Spacers can be found on eBay, so you can use Energizer 357s or uh, SR44 silver oxide batteries. Go with the silver ones. You get a more uh, consistent uh, battery uh, drain as opposed to the alkalines. Now, what's lovely about this camera is it's got an on-off switch, so you don't have to worry about, like, uh, do I have to keep the lens cap on when you're not doing it, like a K1000 or a KM? Um and other than that, it's your classic 1970s SLR. Uh, I've been shooting with it a bit. I, I shoot with it off and on, and I was out shooting with it in the 
Toronto's West End back in November, and I was just again pushing uh, HP five at sixteen hundred. Can't go wrong when the skies are pale, polished cement. Uh, and I got great results uh, with a 51.4 Canon FD lens and a 28 F2. Um, the only caveat is, uh, again, the cameras are getting on for their mid-40s. They were built between 1973 and they were discontinued in 1978. Uh, again, it is a shutter-priority camera, which is sort of different than what everyone else was doing. So while everyone else was pursuing art, Canon went with math, which means... If you're a sports or a bird photographer, yeah, this is the camera for you. And it sort of wound up, it sort of showed where Canon was going technology-wise a few years ahead, especially with the A series. The AE1 was shutter priority. The AE1P was also shutter priority, and uh, that that was the sort of path they chose. It started with the uh, the AEF. The EF was slotted in just underneath the F1. In fact, I think it was like only like seventy dollars cheaper when it was a new. So literally, it was really geared to what I call advanced amateurs or the where the doctor and dentist market. Whereas the AE1 that it kind of replaced it or the A1 was more geared. I think Canon sort of did a change in sort of philosophy where, yeah, we want to get an SLR in everybody's hands. So it was a housewife camera. Exactly. So it did not have the quite the same engineering as the EF did. The EF kind of went along, and again, it went to like 1970. It had a five-year lifespan, which is actually pretty good compared to, say, like the Pentax K2, which only had, I think, four years. And, um, and maybe the Minolta XE7, which didn't last that long in the market. So it had a bit of a lifespan to it. And in terms of ergonomics, like the the, the shutter speed, oh, the way it was set up, like the, the dial's a little bit almost over the edge. So for if you want to change it, you can do it without having to like look down and inside the viewfinder, you have both the uh, aperture and the shutter speed. So you've got everything you need in terms of information. So yeah, so what do you expect to pay for one of these? You're looking at about maybe 150 Canadian, uh, give or take on average. Uh, they are out there. They come in any color as long as it's black or very off white. Uh, and again, it's uh, who should but get one of these? Well, if you've got yourself a, a decent size of uh, collection of FD glass, and either A, you're expanding beyond your A1 or AE1, and, uh, and you're looking for something a little different, this is something to consider. Uh, if you're a hardcore FD shooter and you got a bunch of F1s and a, say a couple FTBs, but you're looking, but you don't want the AE1 in your collection, and the EF is something to consider because it's it's built like a truck. It's it's heavy metal construction, and you know if you run out of film, you can use it as a defensive weapon in a in a, in a pinch. Although I'm not, I wouldn't recommend it really because it it ruins such a beautiful look to it. Nice, and. Um... Last but certainly not least is a camera that I enjoy working with. It's probably the only Russian camera that I enjoy working with. <laughs> um, and it is actually a Zenit um, body that isn't going to die anytime soon. And that, of course, is the Zenit E. Yes, indeed. Um, not exactly a precision piece of equipment. <laughs> Um, the so Zenit what, does that have a name? Is it, you just call it Yorgi or something? <laughs> the only reason I have this camera is because the Zenit E was the first SLR I ever used when I was probably twelve years old, 
And that's because growing up, um, uh, it was it was our family camera, not this particular one. I don't know whatever happened to that one, but I I wanted it out of the sake of nostalgia. Um, and the other reason is the typically the lens that it comes with. Now, before I get into the lens, the camera itself is a piece of junk. Um, like let's face it, it it's a freaking boat anchor. But I mean, you know what? It's <coughs> it works and it's a sleeper. And for you know, on average, fifteen bucks for the whole kit, including the lens, you can't really go wrong. Even if you only, you know, it costs, it costs less than developing a roll of film, I think. But, um, anyway, it's not a precision <laughs> piece of gear. It's essentially, uh, um, uh, a does cold, it glow at night? A post cold war rear lens cap, I guess. But, um, <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, enough disparaging the poor thing. It is actually really quite functional and quite easy to repair. Being a Russian camera, uh, the criteria for Russian cameras were um, uh, this, essentially cheap, um, a result of industrial espionage, or must be able to be fixed with a sledgehammer and a slot screwdriver by anyone that goes by the name of Igor. Um, yeah. So it fits all those criteria. Absolutely. Um, the thing itself, um, again, it's it's a completely mechanical camera. If you ever open one of these things up, you'll see there's not much inside other than a spring-loaded shutter mechanism and cloth um and the smell of vodka shutter curtains and yeah and yeah igor's fingerprints and the smell of vodka um uh the cool thing about it is is uh, they all say made in ussr in the bottom which is kind of something cool for these days and uh, another thing that you do have to watch on those is the factory markings so the zenit e was actually and a lot of russian cameras were made in multiple factories yes. Um, so yours actually has the marking for the, uh, Zenit factory. Yeah. Um, my example was made in the Valergia. Oh, really? Factory. So it has a different marking. Yeah. And, um, I'm surprised mine still works because the factory mine was built and didn't have the best quality. The best qual yeah. I guess they, uh. They didn't get, uh, you know, they only got two loaves of bread a week instead of the four It all loaves, depends but, on uh, the um, the mechanical levels of the orphans that were building the cameras. Yeah, pretty much. The camera itself, I mean, look, it's a very basic camera. It's very utilitarian. Um, it comes with uh, a selenium meter, and mine still works to this day. Um, metering with this thing is not the most efficient uh, beast. Uh, it goes from, uh, I believe, ISO, it, and it still has the DIN ratings on it too, but it goes from uh, like ISO uh, 16 to 500. Um, you know, which I guess if you, if you shoot those low ISO numbers and you want to use the meter, I suppose you could. Yeah. Um, the meter is completely manual. The actual readout for the meter, it, it's a match needle um uh, sort of construct, I guess, if you will, and it sits on the top plate of the camera, so there's nothing that you can see through the very dim viewfinder. Um, basically, once you set your ISO, there's a little uh, dial um, uh, that moves inside a window on the top of the camera, and then the needle moves um, based on what the yep. selenium meter is reading. Um, and as you change, uh, so uh, basically what it'll do is you rotate a shutter speed indicator dial. This doesn't actually change your shutter speed. This matches the needle uh, with the meter reading. And then that gives you your shutter speed. And then you go over and then there's a, a knob to control the the shutter speed, um, which goes from uh, 1/30th, which is the sync speed of the camera, only up to 1/500th of a second. Uh -huh. um, 
be mindful of some of these cameras. Uh, mine actually has a uh, uh, like a pawl or a catch inside the dial, so you can't go directly from uh, B to 500. You have to cycle through yeah. the um, uh, the entire range of the shutter speeds to do that. So if your little pawl or stop or whatever you want to call it is broken on your Zenit, uh, don't go from B to directly to 500 go all the way back around otherwise you're going to screw up the spring mechanism inside of the shutter and also make sure the camera is cocked before adjusting that shutter speed yes exactly um uh it's extremely like it's about as basic as you can get uh, of a camera it actually has a self timer which is all mechanical so you can actually hear the thing going um uh shutter release a pretty standard um the uh uh, film rewind knob is a bit of a pain in the ass because it's basically it's it's just it's like it's an old, a knob it's a knob <laughs> like uh, like an old uh, barnack or something like that um, so it's nice to have that that film winder but um, you know what it's it's about as basic as you can get uh, the viewfinder like I said uh, before it's dim it looks dingy it basically makes you feel like you're in Mother Russia of the old days I believe you got it um, now why is this a bit of a sleeper uh, hidden gem camera. And that's because it's a rear lens cap to a really, really cool lens, which is the uh, uh, Helios 44 F2, um, which is actually a, a um, I believe it's a 58 millimeter lens. Yep. Um, it's not a 44 millimeter lens and it's not a 50 millimeter lens. Um, the cool thing about this camera, <laughs> you know, reminiscent to their previous episode, this is bokeh with a twist literally um or a swirl um one of the cool uh features of this uh of this lens um or image attributes if you will uh is it produces really swirly bokeh um which people kind of like and i kind of refer to it as sort of the van gogh reproduction uh yep. type of lens uh, so if you're shooting some portraiture or isolating subjects with this lens you really for to get that sort of swirly bokeh effect typically what you want to have is your subject backlit um, and backlit to forty-five degrees um, on the focal plane of the uh, of the uh, lens, and it's when that light is kind of coming in at that uh, at that angle, really accentuates that that strange sort of peculiar uh, background, uh, yeah, out of focus uh, stuff. Um, that's with trees or foliage. Exactly. Yes. Like, yeah, you need uh, some texture to, you to need, actually you need, see it. So. You need a busier background. Yes. Yeah, and and it's really I'm not going to say it's flattering or good or anything like that. It's really just a characteristic. It's different. Yeah, it's different. If you're looking for that, it's it's kind of cool. Like, you know, you want to be a little creative with your work or whatever. Um, you know, uh, it, it's it's a lot of fun. Um, uh, it's an M42 screw mount, so it can basically you can put whatever M42 you want in front of it. Uh, the lens itself, um, it has a, a free floating aperture ring, so you got to be mindful of that. So. Um, if you are, uh, if you have your aperture set to say f16 on this lens, and this one goes from f2 to f16, um, the aperture uh, is free floating. There's a there's an aperture ring in front. Uh, if you set your aperture to two, then the ring is not going to move. But at 16, yeah. it'll move. So it, it it's not mechanical. Like nothing in this camera um, is um, is coupled. No. Anything. So no. uh, everything is completely independent, works independent of each other. Uh, you know what? 
if you're going to pay 50 bucks for this kit, you're paying 50, about 40 bucks too much. <laughs> Basically. Uh, but you know what? If you're looking for something cool, obscure, um, and dirt cheap, it's definitely something. A fun Sunday driver. Yeah. I Absolutely. mean, it, it's, it's just a cool little little thing to have. And I'm going to I'm gonna hand it over to John because I know John has actually got his Helios. He got a, a Nikon F-mount uh, put on his Helios, I believe. I actually have a, a couple. And one thing I was going to mention about the, the Helios and the Zenit is uh, if you're looking for one of these, like there's the Zenit E, but before that, they had the Zenit M series, which I think I, yeah, I, the 3M, I harshed you, on the 3M. You and, berated that camera Yes, and, no and it had it coming. It basically has all of the... Um, all the defects of the ZE without the charm, but the main thing is with one of those is it has this orphan lens mount. It's M, like it's a 39 millimeter screw mount, like a uh, like a Leica screw mount, but of course the flange dif- the distance right. is different. So you need like a spacer for it. Well, it 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 it's, it takes a bit of work. So actually, what I ended up doing was because uh, I I had one, uh, it has the lens, which is like I've got the uh, the aluminum uh, Helios 44, is that the best way I found to use that uh, cheaply is get a uh, an a, a adapter ring M thirty nine to Canon EOS, and then get a cheap uh, film Rebel body, you know, fifteen twenty bucks, and it makes a perfect film kit because mm. these are great lenses. But uh, I'm not to try and find any other lens for the original Zenit M other than the, the Helios, those are not common. No, they're not. Um, surprisingly, when we uh, went to our studio audience, that is the Negative Positives podcast group, thank you again to Mike Gutterman for letting us uh, sort of hijack your uh, your regular group, but it is a fantastic group um, to be a part of. Um, there was actually no overlap with the cameras that we had um, and the ones that were uh, suggested. Um um put up here so uh, ben reynolds um has a it is a russian camera the horizon 202 which is a fantastic um swing lens panoramic um and also junior wyatt um put up the uh, horizon s3 pro um i've used the uh, lamography version of the horizons before and they're wonderfully weird cameras to work with um, our own Chrissy Wu um, put up the Olympus 35 SP. Woo! Woo! <laughs> I love my 35 SP. Um, and yeah, I would say it's a very much a hidden gem because most people with Olympus will go for an XA, a stylus. That is true, Or actually, a trip yeah. 35. Yeah. And the along... SP is so... I mean, like, that lens, that Jizukyo uh, 42 millimeter oh, lens, yeah. I can't say enough good things about that. Yeah. And how many of us grew up when that was, like, one of our parents or aunts or somebody's oh, yeah. point and shoot mm, yeah. every time we went yeah. to their place or on vacation? Yeah. It, it is... Uh, it's one of the lesser known um, Olympus rangefinders. Yeah. You know? Or and, less popular, I yeah, suppose. Less popular. And Jess Hobbs put up the uh, Olympus 35RC, and if you've watched her video about um, photographing that one puck, punk rock fest, that's the camera that she used for it and got some fantastic results. Um, Logan Christian and um, Alex Smith um, both put up the uh, Kony Omega cameras, and if you've ever used one of those, they are weird and rare and yeah my brother loved his loves his coney omega uh yeah he's had that for probably over probably 15 years and i've only seen like three of them ever 
including a TLR version one at um, Dick Ross's old store in uh, Rochester, Rochester, New York. Oh, Whoa! Wow. I went. I went in that store um, to buy a few things. I that's where I got my uh, 105 2.5. Did you get influenza when you walked in? I literally. Um, I think I got lung cancer. <laughs> yeah. uh, from the minute I walked in that store, and I probably spent maybe half an hour in there, I think he smoked 50 cigarettes. Yeah, that 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 sounds about a light day. Yeah. So all the lenses were coated? Yeah, pretty oh, much. Yeah. Coated lenses, yeah. yeah. Like, I was coated. They all had soft filters. Yeah. Is he is he still around, I wonder? I don't know. <laughs> Wait, I mean, maybe an oxygen was... tank, he, perhaps. He got, he got kicked out of the place lung. when they decide to turn it into a uh, a bunch of upscale condos. Uh, but yeah. that was that building needed some wrong. work. It, it was quite a per- peculiar experience. You, yeah. You, first of all, you roll up, you pull over on some street in Rochester. That's sketchy enough. Well, um, at least it's not by the old subway. Yeah, true. Um, and then <laughs> and then there's a number to call on the door. Yep. Yeah. And he's in there the whole time. He'll buzz you in, and he and he buzzes you in, and then like it is like. Uh, I mean, I don't know, man. It's it's like uh, things are packed and stacked everywhere. Yeah, oh, yeah. you don't know oh, where to look. It's yeah, it, I, your eyes burn. You remember the, uh, to- the original Total Recall? You know, like, yes. Yeah. and then they have that like weird the good market. one. The good one. It's yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I got there's a camera store that was in New York City. My brother t- took me there in 2012. It's long gone now. And it was near the it was near the Flatiron. I think it was Union Square. What yeah, was the was, name of it? Lens and Repro. Yes. Okay. Lens yeah. and Repro no... is a fan was a fantastic oh, store. I mean, to get there, there was no storefront. You had to take a small elevator. Yep. Yep. But it was a weird elevator that it wasn't just like elevators outside of New York City where there was just one door. There were two doors. One opened one side, but you had to turn almost ninety degrees. There was another door that opened. Yeah. And it was like just because virtue of the, it was the tight spaces, then you walked into the store. And it was like you just left sit there going, "Oh crap, they're black like a three G's. Who knew they existed?" Mm-hmm. And yeah, just no. stuff that you just like, huh? <laughs> and the prices weren't that bad. No. I kind of, in hindsight, regret not like just saying, "Screw it, I'm getting <laughs> this, everything." This <laughs> yeah, I just like it was one of those twenty twenty hindsight. These because they did a lot of work with the film industry. Because again, if they if you're doing a period piece. Yeah, something in the fifties. Yeah. Okay, I need a bunch of like speed, gra- stuff, yeah. speed yeah. graphics, uh, maybe a couple of Leicas or what have you. Yeah, they were the go to. So you have to be careful to make sure something you're buying is functioning. Yes, yes, that was. But the other one than that, problem. it was like they had rolly flexes at the wazoo, and I'm like, my God, really? And unfortunately, it's one of those rents got expensive. The owner got too old, and he decided he wanted yeah. to cash out. And I can't remember who wound up buying the business. I think it was Adorama wound up with a chunk of I it. I think so. Yeah. Which is a shame because it's, well. Yeah. I think yeah. they bought up some of the stock and sold it off. Yeah, yeah probably, I think yeah. that's what happened. Because Adorama is right by the Flatiron. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Building there, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, interesting. Yeah. yeah, it was an interesting store that, you know, it's kind of like. But, you know, that, that's the problem. That's why people need to buy new, new film, film cameras. <laughs> well, it's like support your local indie film camera store. Like, Absolutely. We're, we're, yeah, we're, we're lucky we have some, but some places don't. That's the problem. Well, yep. I had this conversation with uh, Dustin, Dustin Cogsdale, and he he's down in Atlanta way, and he's like, yeah, I'm the only guy around, and there's no one really into this deeply. Yep. And there's 
in a, a store like like we're blessed that we got Burlington camera within our own backyard and we got downtown camera you know in the city but yeah when you when you start getting other places it's like yeah yeah you're you have to order online because that's your only option yeah or i we've read some uh things from uh the you know negative positives of people going I'm making a run to the city anybody have a list of things that they want that I'll bring back sort of thing and they're doing like four or five hour round trips or like, yep. or drive outs and then spending the night and coming back so yeah and so it's we are very fortunate here in the GTA mm-hmm. getting back to uh, the list here <laughs> speaking um, of which yeah uh, Kevin Lane, the Minolta Hymatic 7S. Another oh, yeah. Good call. Sleeper camera. Good call. Um, Jim Graves and Brian Roberts both put forward the uh, Nikon F801. Now, that's that's a series of Nikons that I have zero experience with. I've that's never right. shot an 801. I Same shot here. an 801 as a secondary to an F4 professionally. There we go. Uh, very good camera. Um, it had a lag. Um, you'd hit autofocus and go, and it always had this... That's not the autofocus. But autofocus, the motor would kind of build up, going, okay, and then the shutter would go. And that, um, if you had it on multi, you know, like, you know, three frames per second sort of thing, it would go, and then, and then not stop. But it had this wind up before it actually took a photo. Well, it was one of the early AF cameras from Nikon. Eric Reese, the Ansco Auto Reflex. Again, zero experience with that, but that's hidden. He's, he says it's a great camera. Um, Jason Elias, um, the Minolta X370, the yep. uh, younger cousin of the X700. 700, yeah. yep. Another fantastic uh, camera. I like the design of the top plate of that one. Very simple yeah. and kind of 80s look to it. Mm-hmm. Kind of reminded me of the um, X7A, Yeah, which yeah. was uh, one of my first cameras. Um, Andrew Peterson, the Nickermat line. Oh, you killed Karan the Nickermat. Um <laughs> Anthony Rue, the uh, Konica Auto Reflex line, but you really buy those for the lenses. That Hexanon glass is second to none. Um, Vicky and Bill Thu, um, the Maxim Five, again fantastic. Yeah. And Konica Minolta built their fir- one of their first digital SLRs off that body. Um, another one from Alex Smith, the uh, Fuji GA six forty five. Oh, yeah. Again, fantastic. I just don't like the fact that it sort of locks you into portrait format, and you really have to be weird to hold it to get that mm-hmm. landscape. It's a bit pricey, that thing, too. Well, we're all yeah, my, my brother's yeah. a partner in a global accounting firm. He can afford that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to out you there, Alex, but the, there, there we you go. go. <laughs> uh, Corey Miller, um, the Zeiss Iconta 6x6. Six, um, six six. Yeah. I have a super Iconta C 6x9. Yeah. They're great Love little folders. Thing. Yeah. Um, Jess, um, Jess Lance, the uh, Sears KS2, which is basically a Ricoh um, copy. Yeah. Um, so, again, you have the Ricoh on glass, which is excellent. Plus, it's came out. So. I think my brother has a few of those. He loves that uh, camera, yep. actually. Isn't that the Sears version, like the KR1 yeah. or whatever yeah. it was? Yeah. The KR series yep. that Ricoh had? I uh, guess KS would be, yeah. Sears, Sears yeah. version, and then yeah. KR would be Rico. Rico, and yeah, K- and that's the way it worked. Yeah. Um, Jeremy Zorn's the Nikon FG. Yeah, cool. Neat Very little, neat little yeah. basic student camera of the eighties, uh, yeah. and um, and very much a test though. Yeah. Like the yeah. like the EF. 
Um, Royal Moss, the uh, Leica CL, a little bit pricey on that sure. one. Um, Depending what glass you put on there, I suppose. Like, I mean, yeah. if, if you're going to spring for like a Sumacron C in front of that, uh, I mean, you can't really go wrong. Yeah. And there's the Minolta version, which is always a little bit cheaper, but they're yeah. getting up there now. Yeah. yeah. The problem with those cameras is the meters go on them right away. Not that you need the meter necessarily, no. but, you know, yeah. Yeah. it's handy to have a built-in meter. Um, David Mahali put forward the uh, Canon Rebel T2. Sure. Again, one of the great plastic, basic... fantastic. Yeah, I've got a couple of those because that's yeah. like I said, I was using that for the the Helios. Yeah, um, Angela Solis, the uh, Contax Aria. Mm, Can't not really familiar go... with the Aria. Um, it's like a uh, deluxe one six seven, I think. Yeah, um, it's, it's, it is a nice camera, and they have excellent... some funky camera uh, colors. So if yeah. it's called an Aria, does it mean you can get it for a song? Ooh, oh boy. nice. Oh, boom. Maybe um, the camera body, not the lenses. Yeah, not the lenses. I'm actually surprised at what Mike Gutterman put forward. I was expecting a Leica R. Or but an he went APS. Back to his, uh, or an APS camera. Absolutely. A Provia. Yeah. yeah. Um, his eye actually um, makes perfect sense. The uh, Pentax P30T. Yes. Excellent, excellent cameras. Yeah. Um, Jeff Greenstein, the Pen EE3. Yeah, if you're if you're into half frame, mm-hmm. yep. and um, probably the unique one on the list is from uh, Greg Orbst, um, the uh, Kodak Hawkeye Flash, but with a flipped lens. Okay, okay. invert yeah. the meniscus lens. Basically. Yeah, it, it really it. gives a, a hyperspace look yeah. to it. That's um, a cool idea. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I, we I covered have, we covered it. Yeah. on a very early season first episode. Season, first season, mine. I still have mine with the lens flipped. Neat little, yeah. neat little effect. Really, I really easy do that. To do. The problem with my Hawkeye, it's a six twenty version, so it's a pain in the ass to. Uh... Uh, mine's they're all six twenty. Are they all six twenty? Okay, but the I thing thought... is, is that all you need is a six twenty take up spool. Yeah, I know. You just got to wind the fi- or roll a spool to film. I right. thought they made some one twenty versions. No, no, no. Okay. no, no they were Oh, maybe no, the no, uh, no, you know what I'm confusing with the brownies. The, the brownie brownies. box cameras yeah. had yes. Uh, yes. both six twenty and one twenty versions. Well, well it's, there's never been a better time to buy brownies in Ontario. That's what I'm <laughs> well, that about covers it for this episode. Um, my name's Alex Lux, and I just like to say that in the uh, if uh, CCR was in the motion picture, CCR would abide. This is Bill Smith from the Classic Camera Revival. Uh, sometimes it just pays to fly below the radar. Uh, again, it's just one frame at a time. Keep it real. This is James Lee. Um, get those closet cameras out of the closet and get out of the closet and shoot some film. Andre. This is John Meadows saying, you know, go visit your parents. See what cameras they have up in the attic. Who knows? You might find family jewels, but then again, it might be junk in the trunk. Oh, God. Or a skeleton in the closet. I, um, speaking of Andre, um, can we see some pictures of your girlfriend? I've been, I've been to Niagara Falls a thousand times and I haven't found her yet. <laughs> Ouch!